At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us. Now, if you'll turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're going to begin our time together reading the Word of God. I'm going to have it on the screen, but if uh, once you get to stand right back up, we'll read this together in honor of God's Word. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for uh, the scriptures which you've given to us to reveal your love, light, and way. And I pray that as we uh, focus on the word, that any defiance in our hearts would be melted away that we would walk unlike Jonah as people who are uh, desirous to follow you and are willing to count the cost, whatever that might mean. I thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Now help me decrease so that you might increase. Help me to be small that you might be great. I ask, Lord, that you would show forth your love in our hearts. Invade every place and be the teacher. We look to you in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Jonah is a story about a man who runs from God. Now, despite being surrounded by books that probably most of us brush by or have maybe never read, Jonah is one of the more well-known stories in the Bible. A big fish comes and gets a guy and spits him out on a surface, and God sent the fish. But more specifically, it's a story about a prophet of God who found himself given a message that he did not want to send. So he hightailed it out of town in an attempt to not do what God had called him to do. Now, before we look at Jonah, we need to think about how prophets work. Go to the previous book, the one right before Jonah, the book of Obadiah. Obadiah was written around the same time and contains also similar messages of God's judgment. Obadiah starts off in the, in the normal prophetic way that is found consistently throughout most of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. It starts off this way, Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Now we are meant to believe in any prophetic book that what follows is not a message from the prophet themselves, but a message from God. So the, so the message began, and Obadiah, let me just, spoiler alert, it's not pleasant. God is not happy, and he calls them to repent. He says, we have heard the report from the Lord, and the messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. And if you continue reading the book of Obadiah, you're going to find the next 21 verses are God's message against lawless people, calling them to repentance and pronouncing judgment. Prophets were one of the weirdest, most unique groups of people in biblical history. Prophets, like many leaders, were meant to call people into God's presence. Unlike priests and kings who had to use the rhythms of the calendar and the year to call people into rites of worship, prophets had a kind of a special message function, a sort of high alert. Oh my gosh, something new is being said. And typically, it wasn't ever good news. 
Prophets had the unfortunate job, I am so glad I wasn't an Old Testament prophet, they had the unfortunate job of speaking typically against God's people and calling them to repentance when they were sinning against the living God. God would call these people to himself through a kind of vision or it's like a ceremonial calling. The book of Isaiah begins with one such calling. Uh, and if you've ever read the book of 1 Samuel, you find how God called Samuel to himself through a series of dreams and, and confirmed that in his community. And then you can even look at the calling of John the Baptist and Jesus, the word spoken to their parents and then the baptism that followed. That's an example of prophetic calling too. Prophets were supposed to speak only what God wanted them to say. And if at any point they were speaking for themselves, they were supposed to be killed. That's how serious it was. You couldn't poison the well or you'd die. Like, the prophets were, at every point, they were supposed to speak purely the message that came from the Lord. God did not, and still doesn't, like people who claim to speak for him but are actually just foaming at the mouths. But if they did speak for God, you had better listen. Because even if you didn't like what they were saying, the words that were, you were hearing were the words of God. Jonah was a prophet called by God, called to be God's voice amongst the peoples. And this is the story of his calling. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come upon me, come up before me. Just like we saw in Obadiah, there's this rhythm of establishing that this is a person who's been given a special oracle by God, and now he's supposed to go and give that message, and that message alone, to the people. Jonah opens up, we find out that these are the words of the Lord. So let's make this very clear. God has a statement that he wants to share with this evil country called Nineveh. And it's this in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah has the unfortunate, or maybe fortunate, uh, opportunity to get up and pronounce judgment, which is a common thing, again, for prophets to pronounce, to a foreign nation, Notably, not the Israelites. He's not going to God's covenant people. He's going to an outside nation. Because God has had enough of this nation's sin. He's had it up to here. He wants it done. He's going to calling them to repent. But unlike the other prophetic books, which I must say for myself, reading the Old Testament prophets is not an easy task. I don't understand poetry. I have never been a good poetry reader. But unlike the old other apocalyptic poetry books, this book is more of a narrative. It tells the story about what happens to the prophet himself. Jonah has one job, one job to do, and that is to speak the word of the Lord against the people of Nineveh, but he doesn't want to do it. He is not at all interested in fulfilling that task, so he hightails it out of town, and so we see in Jonah verse, chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it and took to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Scholars estimate that Tarshish had a, was, a, was a trade route where some of the most important trade was made on this particular trade route. And to get to Tarshish 
from where he was starting was like a three-year journey round trip. So he was going away and not planning on coming back. So you want to know what defiance looks like? This. The prophet of God, given a special message by God, called to speak to a very specific people during a very specific heightened time, and he says, uh-uh, and goes away. This is what defiance looks like. Now, we have two points in this sermon, and the first one is this. I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the Lord's servant, and I know what the Lord wants. Jonah knows what God wants of him. And he also knows what God wants of the people of Nineveh. But he does something remarkably stupid. He tries to run from God. In order for us to get an idea for why someone would attempt such a foolish behavior, we have to get into the thinking of the ancient Near Eastern people of that time. We have to understand how their concept of deities and gods were. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when this book was written and when this story was originally told, it was very common for people to believe that gods were kind of, well, there were endless amounts, and they were always jockeying for power. First, they believed there were many gods. Then they believed that gods had varying levels of power. So you'd have smaller gods here and larger gods there. And then you have cosmic gods. And they were all working against each other and playing pranks on each other. And were doing horrible things. If you want some terrible reading, read up on the ancient Near Eastern vision of gods. And you'll find out that these were some of the most awful people that you could possibly imagine. And they were the ones that people worship. But they weren't just varying levels of power, but they were also regional gods, so sort of like governors and mayors for different towns. There would be one god over a larger region, and he had little bitty pockets of deities underneath him. And then there were family gods as well, who stuck with the family out of some sort of reciprocal relationship that was established. So if a, if a person, imagine you moved to a new area. We just moved here to Michigan. Imagine if, like us, you were suddenly hit with a stroke of bad luck after bad luck after bad luck. You're, like we, had a flood and a car accident. My daughter broke her collarbone. Bad luck just keep, keeps on coming. You would hopefully sacrifice to whatever gods that were, you thought were in the area. But if bad luck kept on striking, you would probably assume in those days that the god had it out for you. And you were going to die if he got the chance. So what they would do is get out of town. Because they literally thought the arms of the gods reached only so far. And that once you got out of the, the breach of that god, you were finally safe. And good luck would finally be your, yours. This is what Jonah, despite knowing better, tries to do. He tries to outrun the region of power over God. He takes a boat headed to Tarshish under the hope that God is not the god of Tarshish or the waters, or the sea. He's just the God of Israel. He tries to flee from the presence of the Lord, but you cannot outrun God. One, on the one hand, it's important to know how deity is conceptualized. There was local deities, there were family deities, there were regional, all sorts of things, varying levels of power. That's important to know. But on the other hand, you have to also know what Jonah is running from. A basic assumption that's in this book and throughout the entire Bible, and it's this, that God is sovereign over every place and person, that everyone in this world stands before him, falls before him, and is answerable to him. 
The reason you cannot outrun God is because God is sovereign over all places and peoples everywhere. He's not just Israel's God. He's everywhere's God. He is the sovereign ruler over everything. When Christians speak about sovereignty, typically it's like in debate form. Oh, you have the Arminianists over here bickering this way and the Calvinists over here bickering this way and they just get a lot of noise because people want to know and they don't despite people attempting this. People don't understand how the Lord God of glory interacts with the actual details of life. It is a mystery. You are literally staring deep, deeply into the mysteries of the universe. That is something that people debate and they, the Bible has a lot to say on that matter. And people disagree on how it's to be interpreted. One thing the Bible doesn't leave up for question is whether or not God is the sovereign ruler over all things. So sovereignty does deal with the question of how God interacts with the details of our lives. But sovereignty also is the belief that God is the God of all places, every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is not up for debate in the scriptures. This is not something that's even questioned at all. The Bible everywhere assumes that God is the Lord and ruler of everything. And every time, in every space, wherever you go, it's God's. Why does God even care about what's happening in Nineveh? Why does God even notice what's happening in Nineveh? Because he's the Lord of Nineveh, just as he's the Lord of Israel. Those people answer to him just like Israel does. The assumption of Scripture is that God is sovereign. And you don't have to search far to find these truths. I picked a few passages from the Psalms. And actually, we read one, we sang one of them earlier from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, kings, all the kings of the earth, set, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in Psalms 1, 2, verses 1 through 2, you have these nations who are ticked off about the fact that they're answerable to God. And they're saying to themselves, let's get free of his rulership. What does God think of this coup? He thinks it's ridiculously pitiable. Verse 4, it says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I love this image. The Bible spares no punches. All the kings of the earth are like, we're going to throw God down. And God's like, <laughs> that's the vision of God. He is not at all concerned about his lordship just suddenly falling because the nations are a little disappointed with him. And so I hope, let's pause for a second. I hope this encourages you whenever you see the world going crazy, crazy links to be crazy, crazy, crazy. God is still in control. And when people stand up and say, we're going to throw God down or we're not going to worship God anymore and people get all disappointed, like God's laughing in heaven over this stuff because nothing on heaven and earth is actually a challenge to his sovereignty. It says here, and continuing in chapter two, then he will say to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell this decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces like a potter's vessel. 
So the nations are told that judgment is coming. But it continues. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is an amazing passage. I would encourage you to go and like stew over it for a while. But right in the middle, there's a call for judgment. But at the very end, it ends with the sweetness of the day when God will make all the nations his own and will bring them all under right order. He's the Lord over them, and they're all answerable to him. But there's a promise throughout the whole of Scripture that every tribe, nation, and tongue will one day worship their God fully. Psalms, this psalm shows us how beholden the nations are to God. It shows us also the promise of both judgment and mercy because God loves the nations just as he loves you and knows every hair that's on your head and all of your story. He loves every person on heaven and earth the same way. So there is judgment, but there's also the anticipation and the expectation that the nations will find their glory and restoration before the Lord. That's how the nations are treated throughout the book of Psalms. We see judgment in Psalm 9, verses 5 through 6. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. An enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The cities you rooted out, the very memory of them is present and perished. But then we also see mercy Psalm 67, 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations of the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. There's also then again judgment, Psalm 59. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish the nations and spare none who who plot evil. But then there's also mercy, Psalm 82.8. Rise, O God, of judge the earth and inherit all the nations. I love this vision. The nations are an inheritance to God. He is sovereign over all of them, but there's coming a day in which all things will be made right and all things will be ordered under his sovereign care. And we will see all people from every tribe, nation, and tongue lift their voices to the God of glory, the Lord of majesty. This is the vision that Jesus picks up In Matthew 25, when he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him he will gather all the nations, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. This is the moment of judgment and mercy. When we see God reorder all of humanity, everybody from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and bring his people fully restored to himself. You see this. Please understand, God is the sovereign ruler over every nation, tribe, and tongue. He is your God, and he's their God too. He is Jonah's God, and he is the God of Nineveh. God wasn't usurping someone else's authority. There was no other authority to be had, which is why he, as the Lord of glory, can wonderfully send his prophet into Nineveh, Those people may not have been his covenant people. They may not have the same kind of relationship as Israel had to the Lord. But God knows them, cares for them, and what they do matters before him. And the beautiful arc of scripture is that God continues to call the nations to himself. 
even ones that are defiantly against him. And one day, you'll be there. Everyone in heaven and earth from all time and space will stand before the Lord. This is why Jesus accomplished on the cross such an incredible gospel. It's not just for you. It's not just for me. Not just to make our life feel more righteous in the moment. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. This is the foundation of Christian mission. That God is the sovereign Lord over everyone, everywhere. Everyone is beholden to him. That's why we go on mission, whether it's a mission trip through Woodside or some other way, or we go on mission to our neighbors. It's because God is their God too, and we want them to worship him. We want them to know him. We bring the gospel to the nations not as a way to like modernize or colonize the rest of the world, but to bring them to their sovereign Lord who absolutely loves them. Everyone in heaven and earth was beholden to God. Nineveh was beholden to God. Israel was everyone. And Jonah knew this. He had no doubts. But Jonah didn't want to give this message of judgment. Why? Because Jonah also knew God. And here's what he found. Jonah must hate the Ninevites because he really wants them to die. And he probably assumed that by not giving the message, that eventually God would just be like, well, whatever, and just throw some fire on them and burn them up, make them a crispy bunch of flesh. But instead, he runs away, hoping that God would forget about him, judge the nation, and be done. Why would... But here's, here's the weird part of this story. Why would Jonah, who wants the Ninevites to be killed, run from giving them this disastrous news. It's because he knows God's heart. Now, spoiler alert, you probably know the story already, but Jonah knows the very heart of God, and this is why he refuses to do what God has called him to do. Jonah knows that as much as God is fed up with the sin of the people, if they repent, repent even just a little, God will show mercy. Why? Because God is a God of mercy. God loves pouring out mercy to all who call upon him. Even if all they give him is a little bit of an inch of response. And if you actually see how the Ninevites respond to Jonah's message when he finally gets there, it's not actually that much. But God so overwhelms them with generosity and graciousness that he relents completely of the disaster and shows them love and restores them to himself. This is why Jonah left. This is why Jonah wanted to outrun the reach of God. It's because he says in Jonah 4, verse 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This is him quoting Exodus 34, where God was about to throw some disaster down on Israel for being idolaters there. The Lord says to, to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who while by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. Do you hear it? The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God that Jonah knows, and this is the God he doesn't want the Ninevites to meet. He knows that with judgment always comes mercy, that every time there's a hard word from the Lord, right beneath it is a loving father giving it. Jonah hates these people and wants them to turn into toast, but he also knows the Lord. He knows the Lord's faithfulness and goodness. He knows that if they repent even a little, God will lavishly pour out his love because that's who God is. It's not that God just responded that way because it seemed appropriate. It's that that's who God is. There are certain things you get to know about a person over time. And I bet if you were to quiz my wife about, what, Rachel, if, Nathan, if I were to do this to Nathan, how would Nathan respond? Rachel knows me. And she would probably be pretty good at guessing what my general response is because she knows me. And so don't put her on the place so you might learn things about me that you don't wish to know. But the simple fact is this. What happens when God meets someone who asks for mercy? Does God weigh out the benefits and say, you know, what's in this for me? Does God say, ah, you know what? You really did screw it up. But all right. No. It's like what, it's like what happens anytime you see, you know, babies being held by someone who's like uninitiate and doesn't know how to hold a baby. And so they're handing it off, and all of a sudden, every mom in the room is like, oh, I'm going to catch it, I'm going to catch it, I'm going to catch it. That's how, that's just, it's just inert inside of a mother. they just like, I'm going to catch the baby. Dads can do it, too. There's some amazing video clips on dads doing some monster saves, and it's amazing. Because that's what happens. Suddenly, your world transforms by the presence of this little minion, and you want more than anything for them to be safe. And you'll do anything to make them safe. So what happens when someone comes to the Lord and says, I need mercy? It's just that inert response is mercy, pouring out, lavish and good, full to the fullest, steadfast and faithful. That's who God is. And Jonah knew that. Jonah knew that if they met this God, they would meet mercy. That if they turned from their wickedness, they would find mercy mercy. This is who God is. This is how God responds to wickedness. You ever find yourself in a rough spot? Call out to God. Even if you're in the middle of the rough spot, you will receive mercy because that is who God is. Every hard word that the Lord gives, the Lord gives it in a loving and merciful way. He delights when the crooked find their way home. He delights when his children call out to him. Eventually, Jonah does go. Spoilers. He goes via fish instead of boat. I will entrust you to read the story to see how the perilous journey continues. But I want to ask how we should think about this story for ourselves. Surely, in these first three verses, there's a clear warning about defiance. We can talk all day long about what God wants us to be about. 
They can opine the greatness of Christian mission and how we should be in community, intentionally loving our neighbors. But if we don't do it, and the defiance of our hearts keeps us from obedience, we should watch and beware. Because God loves you too much to allow you to have a ridiculously hard heart. It is really stupid to defy the living God. Because you can't go anywhere where he isn't sovereign. He has sovereignly placed you in this community. And he's arranged your life. He's going to show a little bit what I think about sovereignty. He's arranged your life in such a way that the people you meet are your mission field. Should we defy him by being disobedient in the places where he wants us to show love? Let's not be that guy. None of us are prophets in this room, but all of us have been given a task that is good and loving. No task is too big or too small. No good is too menial for us. And we are meant to love people that are easy to love and people that are very hard to love. Let's not be like Jonah and defy the living God. He is sovereign over every place you walk. There's not a single place you can go where the Spirit of God isn't there already. So do the good he's called you to do. But the greater question I want to ask you is this. When you look at the world, do you see a world that God loves? Do you see a place that is under his sovereign rule and care? Do you see the nations and imagine them to be godless and horrifying? Or do you see places where God is at work doing amazing things? Which is it? They can't both be true. We don't go on mission because God isn't there. We go on mission because God is there and he wants to do great things and he invites us into it. Do you see the world that way? Jonah did not. Don't be like Jonah. That guy was ridiculous. He honestly thought he could outrun the reach of the living God. It's like when a little toddler thinks that with those little legs they can outrun you. Ha, I got big boy legs. I can run, boy. Even runners. My firstborn was such a runner. Even he could not run me. How much more the living God, who absolutely delights to give his children love. Every place you go is his. Every person you encounter is under his ruling care. And he delights to lavish grace upon them. He's already doing it. Now be a part of that wonderful mystery. See the world not for the crumminess that you can read on the Drudge Report, but instead through the eyes of the living God who is at work doing wonderful things. Americans like to say one nation and the God, and guess what? They stole that from God. Because all nations are under his lordship. All people are under his care. This is all the more reason why we should act in joyful obedience, not defiance, because there's no place you're going to go where God isn't already at work. You might be scared. I'm terrified about being on a mission. I'm, people think, well, you work at a church, must be a professional Christian, really good at this stuff. Heck no. I'm terrified, just like everyone else. But I want to see the world the way it really is, not like Jonah did, thinking he could outrun God, thinking that God isn't sovereign. I want to go where God is at work, 
And I want to submit to God's work there. You will not find a person in your path that isn't exceedingly loved by their maker. And even though you may bring some good, bad news to them about sin, maybe, about temptation, about the problem of evil in the world, undergirding all of that is the mercy of God. Because God is ready and willing and excited to lavishly pour mercy on anyone who asks for it. Let's not be defiant like Jonah. Let's make a a team packed here and now. No, not me. Let's be obedient to our sovereign, gracious, and kind Lord. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.